Welcome to another Charity Chat podcast. My name is Osman Mughal and I am joined today by my colleague Vicky Luck. We had the pleasure to speak to Regine Skarbubowitz, Monitoring, Evaluation and Learning Advisor at Care International. Regine leads Care International's Monitoring, Evaluation and Learning work for the Women's Economic Empowerment Programme. Today's discussion focuses on what MEL is, why is it important, particularly in international development context, what are the components of a successful MEL plan, the common data collection methods, what are the challenges that an organisation can come across and how to overcome these and build an effective MEL system. We will also touch on examples of MEL of good practice throughout the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Hello, good evening, Regine, and um, thank you very much for joining our podcast. Um, can you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, um, and how you, you got interested in what you're doing now? Okay, um, well, it's really nice to um, be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, yeah, my name is Regine. I work for a, an international uh, NGO called Care International, based here in the UK, but it's really a, an, an international organization. Um, and I've been working in the yeah, sector of international development for over 10 years. Wow. I kind of, yeah, so, well, I started off working for an international NGO, quite a big one, and kind of really stayed in the NGO uh, kind of world. Yes, world. Yeah. I, um, I, you know, a lot of people who kind of start working for NGOs, they then move on to government uh, institutions or to the United Nations or kind of bigger intergovernmental bodies, but I've always stayed with with INGOs because I just feel they do really important work in, in development. I just like the way they work. There's lots of issues and I'm sure we're going to touch on yeah. a few <laughs> in the chat. But in general, you know, I feel they, they do really good work and they're just invaluable in kind of yeah, trying to yeah, help reduce poverty and just helping those people who are more yeah, disadvantaged than, than us really. Um, yeah, what else about myself? Um, so I, uh, I'm German by origin but I've really lived, uh, yeah, abroad for, for many, many years. I lived in Eastern Africa for a couple of years, wow. South Sudan, Uganda, Kenya. Oh, was it work that took uh, you there? Sorry? Was it work that took you there? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, I, I, yeah, I feel it's kind of my second home, really. I, I really just, yeah, it's, it's a brilliant, beautiful place. Lots of issues, um, but yeah, also really, really beautiful, amazing people. Um, then, yeah, and for the last eight years, I've worked for uh, international NGOs and social enterprises here in London in a role that's, um, that's either been program management, so humanitarian and kind of longer term development program management, as well as monitoring, evaluation, learning, and knowledge management, which okay. I think is what we're going to talk yeah. about yeah, today. Absolutely. And in terms of your interest in international development, where did that passion come from and your interest within that area? That's a good question. I think I've had that as far back as I can remember right. really. I always loved traveling, you know, even as a teenager and um, I, I knew that I always wanted a job that kind of allowed me to just get to know different cultures, different parts of the world, work with people from sure. different backgrounds. So yeah, and I, I think I'm, I've also just always been passionate about inequality in the world and kind of, you know, trying to do my bit to alleviate that in, you know, whatever small ways I can. So that kind of, yeah, I think drove me into the sector of international development. Um, and I, I haven't, I mean, you know, as probably most people say that work in the sector, there's no kind of clear career path. I studied <laughs> social sciences. There very rarely is a clear career path. Right. Yeah, no. yeah. People just find out what appeals to them as they go along, I think, for yeah. the most part. Um, can you tell us a little bit more actually about Care International? Sure. Okay, okay. So Care International is, um, yeah, a, an international uh, organization that both works in the humanitarian kind of sector, so responding to natural and human-made um, crises. And uh, we also do lots of longer-term development work. We work in over, I think it's around 96 countries, I hope. Um, <laughs> this year was not going to um, Yeah, it's around that. So we work in a lot, a lot of countries, um, primarily Africa, lots of Asian countries, a bit in Latin America. And um, we focus. So we're an organisation that focuses on uh, women's rights and women's voice. So we do lots of gender um, sensitive pro programming, both in humanitarian and longer term development. So it's really about, um, yeah, giving empowering women 
and um, giving women a voice and, and helping women to yeah to to enforce the rights that, that they have. And I work for a team that um, looks at particularly at the economic empowerment of women. So, as you know, I mean, you know, we don't need to look far. Like in the UK, um, women are paid less for the same job as men. There's lots of issues around um, kind of, yeah, women getting into higher kind of level careers because they take breaks to have children or, you know, they're disadvantaged in, in educational kind of areas for lots of reasons so um, you can imagine these issues are you know even kind of accumulated in, in development context. And there must be quite a scale as well you know depending geographically where you are or the culture or the economic socio you know influences exactly. in those you know regions as well. Yeah and I mean you know if you think about farming communities say in, in Africa for example women do a lot of unpaid work so they look yeah, after right. the children you know they do all the household chores they work on the fields that you know they sell their produce in the market do all these things but it's actually a lot of it is not recognized and they obviously don't get paid yeah. for it so that's big issues that we kind of try and just you know help change bit by bit and just to actually have women's work recognized and have women kind of um, yeah give women a bit more power over the kind of you know the income that they generate the resources that they they generate and what types of projects or programs do care international run to empower women especially on the economic side as you as you say so we do lots of different things um, a big kind of thing that we do is um, so-called village saving group saving groups so they're groups that um, bring women together often in rural contexts or work contexts where um, so where women you know not having a lot of financial resources they basically bring little amounts of money together in a, in a kind of savings pot and then are able to take small loans from that group that help them to um, invest in a small business or buy some livestock and slowly but surely like these savings groups run for years um, those women are just um, yeah able to yeah build a small business or basically invest in, in some sort of, sort of income generating activity um, those women also get trained you know a lot um, can't read or write so we we do basic financial training, we tag on a lot of other training on um, sexual and reproductive health for example, hygiene, so lots of issues that just improve living conditions depending on the context, depending on what's kind of needed in that particular part of the world. Um, we work a lot with female entrepreneurs, help them you know, set up small businesses, help them with kind of tailor-made support that they need, um, lots of yeah, kind of financing, uh, you know, different ways of financing, linking them to microfinance uh, institutions. Um, what else do we do? We work a lot with um, women in yeah, sectors like the garment sector in Asia, where you know there's often quite horrible working conditions. Sweat trying shops. to sweatshops, yeah. exactly, trying to improve those working conditions, um, fighting for equal or minimum wages, and you know basic kind of uh, safety, health and safety in those places. So we do kind of a quite varied, uh, yeah, variety of, of programs really. So in terms of um, programs that you're currently working on in your role, which do you think have proved the most valuable in terms of monitoring their impact and you can see actually they're having a greater impact on the communities that, that the, the organisation is serving? That's a good question um, that I ask myself a lot. Yes. <laughs> um, I think the ones that have proven to have like most impact are the ones where so I'm, I'm talking about the kind of, you know, the, like, economically empowering women, also yes. changing, like, gender roles in the workplace, mm -hmm. like, there's women-specific jobs, there's men-specific sure. jobs, so changing a lot of these kind of stereotypes as well and social structures. And the programs that kind of tackle that the best are actually the ones that don't only work with women, but also work with men to you know raise so that we do a lot of and that's actually quite you know successful interventions raising raising awareness of those kind of roles that exist because you know they are they are like readdressing the balance exactly yeah. yeah they're underlying they're not kind of they're, they're often you know they they determine people's behavior and the way they interact but they're not kind of that open yeah uh, kind of in the open so yeah, we, we do lots of kind of couples workshops where you know um, 
couples talk about who is making economic decisions in the family and how they can maybe balance that out a bit better between male and female. Um, lots of kind of gender awareness raising in the workplace um, or in communities to kind of just allow women to kind of break out of those very kind of gender specific roles that limit them in their kind of economic activities. So these are quite um, successful programs I would say that really that tackle a bit the kind of the social structures and the, the kind of underlying issues and not just go in and say you know we're gonna give that woman a cow so she can yeah. I don't know sell milk like yeah. it's not yet yeah, you really need to consider all the contextual factors to actually design an intervention that's suitable and that actually has a positive impact. Absolutely. And how do you determine impact, I suppose? It's obviously quite a definitive mission and cause, but actually it's such wide-ranging issues um, and those challenges, I suppose, can also be just as wide-ranging. So how do you determine what impact looks like and what success looks like? I guess... So for, for the programs that I work on, we define impact as kind of, you know, what we get as feedback from the women that we work with. So we, we try to understand what, what they need to be more economically empowered, to be more economically active, what, what, they're, what they want to achieve, basically. So, you know, we consider as impact when we have achieved what they, they want. But I mean that. So that is kind of, you know, how we design programs. But from so from my organization's perspective, how we define impact is actually we have, and it's I think it's quite a unique thing for such a big organization actually. So we have a set of uh, impact indicators that are that we use across the organization. So for all our you know 96 kind of countries, all the programs that we run there, we have a set of indicators that we use to define the impact that we have and that really cuts across not only my area of work but uh, humanitarian assistance you know food aid um, the kind of yeah water and sanitation health programs so you can imagine these are quite kind of broad indicators but that's how we as an organization define impact yeah and you spoke earlier about um, social structures how difficult is it to come into a country um, in order to overturn those social structures because it can I imagine be quite difficult because those are decades um, you know they take decades to alleviate um, for example education for women um, you know employment opportunities for example um, I was reading a book only um, a while back called Banker to the Poor and it's uh, by Mohammed Yunus he's 2006 Nobel Prize um, winner and he talks about microfinance in the same way that um, you spoke about earlier about empowering communities and what he found is you know kind of if you provide a dollar a day to a woman it impacts the whole community and he's really seen that and that's grown across Bangladesh with Grameen Bank but also into the states and other countries around the world so what I was wondering my question was how do you go into countries um, like Bangladesh for example that have a rich culture and a rich tradition but also have um, different gender roles for men and women and how do you overcome those because the last thing international development charities want to be seen as is coming in from a foreign country and being you know being told we're telling others what to do yeah. and we don't we don't go into a country yeah. and try and change you know traditional cultural yeah. structures that's not that's not what we do that's not what we should be doing so you, yeah I totally agree with you um, so we so care has an approach um, so we work through uh, through partnerships so we actually in all the countries where we work we work with local organizations local associations that you know have been around much longer than we have probably been working in those countries and we we have long-term partnerships with them yeah so I mean, you know, I'm, and I, sorry, I didn't mean to kind of say, you know, sorry if it came across like that, that we kind of, we, we not change not. No. social structures. It's, it's a very, very delicate kind of, you know, way of working. We need to, so we, we need to, we work with local organizations, but with communities, with people. People like, on the ground. You know, we're like, they, they are our, our partners. They're people who participate in the programs that we do. And we, 
understand from them what the issues are that cause barriers to them achieving more in their lives in whatever way you know that can be health related that can be education related that can be economically related and then we work with them to change some of those things probably you know we're not able to change everything sure as and you do say, they make those recommendations yes, they to do. you as well oh, yeah yeah very so much you're very so. much guided by what yeah they i mean you know what do we know i mean <laughs> these are different cultures these are different uh yeah different countries yes. so we you know we we're not in a position to know so yeah it's very much working with people understanding what they feel are barriers to them leading you know a more kind of plentiful life in whatever way that is and we try to tackle some of that what what we feel is within our our remit within our ability and then you know we like we work with partners for a couple of years if we're lucky some projects okay. are even shorter if you think about humanitarian you know response of to course, some sort of disaster so we're only responses. there for a short time so right. you know we we also enable local communities and local partners to then continue the work that we have kind of started off with them yeah in terms of yeah we you know we train we provide um, resources and then but we I think, and I, I, you know, I, I'd hope that most international NGOs work in the same way. We like from the day we start working in a country or with a partner, we already think about what we need to put in place so we can also withdraw and like we of don't course. create. It's sustainable. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Absolutely, and I guess that goes into part of the evaluation and the process of yeah. ensuring that all future projects also are, you know, meet that success. Yeah. So if you. I mean, if you think about minimum standards for evaluation, um, you know, the DAC criteria, the OECD DAC criteria is quoted quite a lot, um, and it's five criteria of which sustainability is one. Okay. So, you know, that is a very, that is a minimum standard. And if you read project evaluations, a lot of them will actually follow the DAC criteria. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Could you give a summary overview of that? Sure. So I'm they are... Totally unfamiliar let me, with this. Let me <laughs> think whether I get them all, all the five together. So. Um, they so basically they recommend and there's whole guidance written around it, but they recommend that you know an evaluation of a project or yeah an intervention looks at the efficiency in which a project was has been implemented how effectively how cost effectively was uh, an intervention implemented how you know how well were resources used could they have been used more um, efficiently were you know if there were kind of external services being contracted was there a more efficient way to mm. do it effectiveness so have actually have the um, has the goal that has been set out at the beginning has that been achieved and how effectively has it been achieved the relevance so has the goal of a project actually been relevant to that context to that community in the first place or was it just something that you know people made up basically and um, the impact so what actually has the program achieved and you know what like an impact like all the programs that we implement we want to have an, a positive impact but quite often there's actually kind of unintended somehow negative or harmful right, consequences of right. what we do yes. I mean as I say unintended but yes. we need to look at that as well and then the sustainability um, just you know how yeah how sustainable are the changes that the project has made sure. in the long term without the organization being there sure. And what are the mechanisms in which you collect this data? Because obviously on the ground, um, that can be quite difficult. So for example, for example, if you're in war-torn countries or countries going through civil war, um, you know, taking Syria for, as an example, um, how do you actually collect this data to ensure that it, you're able to feed back to donors, but also as an organisation, you'll be able to robustly say that this, this project works, this project doesn't work. Because I imagine that can be quite challenging when you're faced with the realities of war or civil war or any problems within the country that you're working in? That's very true. So in terms of data collection, um, it first of all it really depends on the type of project you have. So say for example um, like a distribution of food or some other kind of aid items, you know your, your basic, like the data that you want to have is have have the things reach those people that are most in need so you would need to have some sort of baseline analysis to understand a needs assessment that actually tells you which community is most in need you know um, who yeah wh where do we need to distribute things and then after the distribution you would want to know you know how many people 
who has received like you know men women children depending on what you're distributing because you want to you need to report that back to your funder um, so that is just that's that's actually basic kind of quantitative data that's I mean it's in terms of data collection that's quite easy but you know I was you, gonna say that surely is the easier side it compared is, to yeah. qualitative um, information yeah but then you have you know context limitations so I mean where you can you basically you know you have staff or contracted staff who go and do surveys with questionnaires like we do you can have like we still do lots of kind of paper-based questionnaires, but there is, you know, um, mobile data collection okay. with tablets or, or phones in places where it's... So, and we have, I mean, you know, smaller organizations might not necessarily have staff on the ground, or, but they would have partners or somebody on the ground who's managing or implementing a project. We actually have project staff in a lot of those locations, but take something like Syria, where, you know, even some of our staff can't be in, in all locations. You can um, use things like mobile um, kind of self-reporting. So, you know, people can, I don't know, most people have mobile phones. They can, like, respond to a, they, they can have a, a phone number which they just text, like a free text to say, I've received this or right. that. Okay. So, so I mean, you've actually set a system in place. Exactly. Mm. And is this yeah. operated by the organization directly? Yeah, it can be by the organization or by an external kind of service okay. provider. Um, and so there's there's ways of kind of remote data collection. And I imagine it's easier with sort of the advent of technology yeah. and you know yeah. everything's cheaper, more accessible, and hopefully people have you know easier use of it as yeah. well. So, do you tend to find a lot of um, service users um, potentially help with the data collection? Is it do are they the ones that tend to also submit information? Or is it normally captured by you know your organization's personnel? We would try. Uh, we would we would collect that data ourselves. I mean, there's huge, you know, there's there's huge, there's huge kind of yeah data protection kind of not issues, but things that you need to think about. Because um, you're if, you know I mean we're not collecting necessarily personal information of the people we work with but if we were like that just you know that needs to be compliant with data protection absolutely um, but if it was just anonymous anonymous for example then um, yeah I mean still you know we'd need to like kind of data protection is, is a kind of is a really important issue but yeah we like we would work with service providers as well and kind of but have very kind of clearly laid out you know roles and responsibilities but for the most part we would just set up a system ourselves and then um, collect the data and use that for our purposes but make sure that's that's safe and protected yeah, of yeah. and how how would you go about setting up um, a monitoring evaluation and learning framework um, in order for all of these factors to be um, um, collated and input into a system. How would you do that, I suppose, at the back office to ensure that all of these projects that you're taking part in are successful and have do the desired have do have the desired impact? How do you build that system in place? So I guess I'll yeah um, I'll make a bit of a loop with that. Okay? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it really boils down to the fact that. Uh, monitoring, evaluation and learning is really essential for good program quality. So, you know, you would start setting out a MEL system for a project while you're actually designing the project itself. So when you're thinking about the objective, the, the activities, you at the same time think about the indicators that you want to monitor to, you know, be able to show the change and the impact that the project's having. So you do that kind of during the design phase. You also, I mean, you know, usually part of a design, part of a project design is a theory of change or a logical framework or some other kind of results-based matrix. So in there, you'd already have, you know, you while, while you would develop that, you'd already think about the assumptions that you're making and the indicators that you need to kind mm -hmm. of, yeah, evidence change and, and impact. Um, and then really the kind of, so the, the MEL, so monitoring, evaluation, learning, we say MEL. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, the kind of activities really, they kind of run through the entire project management cycle, if you like. So, you know, once your program has started then, you monitor your indicate you monitor what you're doing using the indicators that you've identified at the beginning you might need to do a needs assessment or a baseline analysis to actually know the starting point because only if you have that I mean 
you might be able to use secondary data on that or statistics. Yes. But if you need to collect the data, then that, that's really important to have because only then you can actually show what change you're kind of making over, or your project's making over time. Um, and then a lot of projects do like reviews or some sort of you know learning exercises in terms of workshops or webinars like while they run or they generate some research or research or learning. And then at the end of a project, you you evaluate. So you know, run a end of project evaluation or an impact assessment to actually see what change you've been making. And you you know you could use that DAC criteria that I've mentioned. Um, so really, you're kind of you know you're, you're setting up that kind of system when you design a project with so with the components of indicators that you use throughout the project with the, with a kind of um, with with an outline of the mal approaches that you want to be using um, with a budget because mal activities are not. Yeah, you know, they're not free of charge and a lot of projects make that mistake, they just assume, oh, you know, it's a bit of data collection, we kind of do that on the side. I mean, it's it's not huge money, but an evaluation and some funders, for example, require what they call independent evaluation, so you need to hire an external consultant, it can't be somebody from within the organization to evaluate the project at the end. So you need to budget for that. Um, so, you know, a kind of, that kind of what do you think the MEL framework needs to include those kind of resources as well? And I guess there's a lot of cross-departmental working really. Yeah. I mean essentially you're working with other teams to set up a program that actually tick that criteria for you and also ensuring that the right objectives are in place along the way. That's very true. So I work with program management teams right. to set up yeah, you know, indicators at the start or theory of change. I do quite a lot of that. Um, but then I also work with you know fundraising colleagues, for example, because the the evidence that we collect on the changes that our projects make, they feed into you know communication. Absolutely, these compelling cases for support. Exactly, yeah. So there's a lot of yeah cross team work, yeah. If you're a small NGO or a small organisation, you may not have the budget for such robust uh, mail pr uh, programs. So I'm just trying to kind of gauge what can smaller organizations do, whether it be um, NGOs or even country, or even organizations working in this country. How can they go about still evidencing the impact they're making? Because obviously, even smaller organizations, despite your, despite your size, you're still making a, a really good impact in the communities that you're working in. But as you rightly say, that finance might be an issue. So how would smaller organizations try to overcome that? That's a good question and we, we see that a lot. So I am, I'm part of the uh, London-based Mel Working Group that's um, been set up by Bond, you might yes, be Bond, aware. Yeah. So there's a lot of small organizations that are part of that group and they have exactly that issue day in, day out, that they just, you know, they don't even have a dedicated Mel staff. It's kind of a program <laughs> manager who does 10 other things outside and a bit of Mel in between. So, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult because still a lot of funders that we work with don't really recognize the value of MEL, so they, you know, they, they don't accept huge budgets, I mean, they're never huge budgets, but even small kind of budget Which um, is surprising, because this really provides evidence for the existence yeah. of the organization. It's not yes. just about the impact, it's a lasting contribution, it's how it affects your service users or beneficiaries or the communities that you do serve so that is quite a surprising but it's, it's attitude it's such a recurring kind of issue and we have you know lots of kind of well right. yeah verbal fights basically and kind of budgets to get approved so yeah that's you know there's still uh, room for improvement on actually just right. getting kind of the resources that are needed and i think smaller organizations will really you know, depend on the kind of smaller institutional grants or, you know, other, other sources of funding, struggle with that. But I think what smaller organizations can do is, I mean, first of all, you know, they can resor use resources that are available. So something like the MEL Working Group, you know, as a, as a platform to share learning, to share experience, to get ideas from, and it doesn't cost anything to come along to a meeting or to engage on an online, online platform. Um, I think then it's also about kind of choosing indicators to monitor wisely and limit the number of indicators that 
um, that you know you you monitor for a project mm -hmm. or for the organization overall. Yeah. So because the fewer indicators there are, the, yes. like the, the more manageable it is to con to collect data and to yeah. to analyze it. Yeah. Um, I think another thing is, and I I kind of preach that quite a bit is to make Mel everybody's issue or everybody's responsibility because really you know it's not the Mel person's role to collect I all like the data analyze yes. it all and then generate nice graphs and reports it is so it is project staff you know basically most people who are involved in a project I'd implementing say it's a final managing. representation of the program exactly. or project really. yeah and it's um, so you know like divide up who is collecting data and make it like don't make it sure make it something that's enjoyable with a you know a nice colorful app or a short questionnaire whatever it is or like a user-friendly kind of format user-friendly system so it doesn't um, really have to be that complicated no just make it simple exactly I think that's, that's exactly what's confusing it. is yeah. that everyone thinks it's got to be this in-depth dive analysis um, but ultimately really it's about opinions it's yeah. about sense checking yeah. as well as the numbers alongside. And I mean, we haven't talked about you know qualitative data yet, but uh, like the majority of data that we collect on programs is qualitative. So it's you know it's conversations, it's interviews with people, um, which is real fun to actually Absolutely. do. Yes. And um, and then I think the other important thing is if you have people you know who kind of have the responsibility to collect data once you've analyzed that data once you've made sense of it once you've kind of collated it feed it back to them because mm. like they are so interested and they see the value in the monitoring you know activities that they do if they then see what messages come out of that what learning comes out of that so share that learning with the people who it's relevant for. I mean, don't sure. dump everything on everybody. I guess it's quite a good motivation angle exactly. as well. Actually showing them the value of all the work that's been put in yeah. and sort of adding value to what they want to achieve next, really. Yeah. So it's that empowering your own workforce and, and engaging learning, it internally. Exactly. It's learning for, you know, the next project that you're doing or the kind of follow-on phase or something because you, like, you learn through monitoring what's working and what's not working. I guess that's another aspect actually, you know, don't just kind of look for kind of validation that what you're doing is the right thing, but also look for the kind of falsification. Mm. So look for things that are not going right that then need to be tweaked and adapted or changed. Because that's really the, the beauty and the most value of monitoring that you actually can make your program even better. But also would you say does success change? Yeah, it can. Yeah, I mean, context change, right? We don't live in a world that's kind of linear. cast in stone, linear, yes. exactly. Yeah. Can you adapt your mail framework? Um, you know, like Vicky says, when you've got a change in circumstances on the ground, um, and how do you go about that to make sure that you're still measuring what you want to measure, and your mail program is still um, effective? But at the same time, it still overcomes the barriers that you're facing within that program. It's a good question because you know, as you say, like context do change, or yeah. um, or even the the kind of objective that we set out. So yes, it's important to kind of review the indicators or the things that you're measuring on a regular basis to see whether they still the most relevant for the project that you're doing. And if they need to be adapted or changed, then that needs to be done as quickly as possible. The point of using indicators like repeatedly in the course of a project is really to be able to show the change that your that your project is making, the impact that it's having. So if you're changing an indicator, that's perfectly fine, but then you need to consistently use that indicator up to the end. I think what we what we find quite often is that so we collect data for example on participants you know in a program um, and we usually disaggregate it by male and female um, sometimes you know we kind of look at children or under like yeah people under under 18 that participate as well but um, often in, in projects then we find that we're actually more in we're also interested in 
for example, getting information about people with a disability who participate or people, elderly people, you know, over the age of, over, over a certain age. So we then kind of start using those category, population categories at a later stage. I mean, it, this is not really changing an indicator, but just to give you an example of, you know, you can introduce new things at a later stage in your project. And that's absolutely fine. You just need to make sure that you have the resources to then collect that data throughout. Um, and I guess, you know, in a lot of kind of humanitarian contexts, um, if the context might change, security situation might deteriorate or whatever, you might not be able to continue collecting some data. Yeah. So it might also yeah, be the fact that, or you know, be the case that you can't reach a certain location where you've been working, and you need to then think about different ways of collecting data. So I think it's it's really just being flexible and kind of adapting to to the situation and being creative. And there's usually a way to kind of overcome the issue. At the organisation I'm currently at, we are embarking on a, a big piece of work to actually analyze and evaluate what's happening within the sector in that particular area in order to understand our role within it now because I think so much keeps changing and absolutely we can still continue funding similar programs um, and institutions for example but actually things do change the world is changing and we've got to keep up with that and make sure that our role is still fulfilling our mission but actually complements the wider working so I don't know how that really fits into um, perhaps your advice or suggestions for other organisations who really, you know, can't stop learning. Um, and, you know, how do we continue making sure that we fit in? I mean, it's definitely, you know, a very important thing to kind of be just self-reflective. Mm. I, from my experience, most organizations do that in kind of, you know, developing a strategy for the organization that lasts for like two years or five years or whatever, and then having a sort of review process. So holding that mirror. Exactly, yeah, to kind of, you know, ask the question, is this what we want to continue doing? Or do, what do we want to change? How do we want to change that? So yes, absolutely, I think that's really important for organizations. And I think, you know, there's kind of this big buzz around learning organizations and how we make sure that you know we we work in learning organizations that are yeah that, that are able to adapt that are able to change uh, and I think that's that's really important to enable that and I think Mel is a key part in that because through Mel you generate learning and um, it is then about sharing that in an organization making that the basis for thinking and for self-reflection so I you know I think something like your organization is doing is exactly the right right thing and and what advice or suggestions would you give to senior management teams across the sector um, to improve Mel because sometimes as you say sometimes it's takes often given the backseat and perhaps not enough focus is given to it when in my opinion and I'm sure we share that opinion that it's one of the key drivers of learning but also to share learning from not only your organization but across the sector so one organization has done a project in some certain way that hasn't quite worked out and you can learn from that um, as an organization that does similar work so what suggestions or advice would you give to senior management teams about the importance of now um, because it has such a great impact on what the organization is doing for the next 10, 15, 20 years because it informs strategy and it forms the way or the direction the organization wants to go. Yeah. I think you've said quite a lot of it already. It, yeah. You know, I, I would really just iterate the, the importance of now for good program quality. Like, you really can't... You just can't do good development programming. Part of me also feels like it must be part Mel. of the governance as well. Yes. You know, yes. you are feeding back your effectiveness, which you mentioned, and value of voluntary funding, essentially, in many cases. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, you know, MEL is essential for, as I said, good, um, good quality programming. It's also essential to actually have compelling messages and stories to fundraise, to communicate, to, you know, whatever audience you're having. Um, and I think it's really important for actually your staff as well to understand you know, the work that they're doing, the kind of greater good that we all work towards and how we can continuously improve to do that better. So I think senior management needs to really understand that importance 
and I and I'm surprised though if there are senior management who don't already do that sort of work on some level they might not call it mail they might not call it you know evaluation sure that's but true it must I think exist yeah. on some level and I, I think probably you know individuals in the sector really recognize mm. the importance but then when it comes to I think when it comes to resourcing kind of institutional support that's where the shortfalls kind of begin so and as I said you know it's not huge kind of money I'm talking about but it is you don't need like depending on the size of the organization you actually don't need a fully dedicated male person if you're you know if you're a very small organization might yeah but somebody you need some sort of expertise and skills um, in your organization uh, around you know um, data collection data analysis knowledge management and learning and that, as I say, that doesn't need to be a full-time, you know, staff. But that it, it's just—it's a skill that it's, it's an expertise. And I think then it's also, you know, you mentioned the kind of inter-organizational learning and communication. I think that's a really important thing because we, as NGOs, we tend to really work in our organizational silos and we tend to duplicate yeah. so much and just waste time and. You know, resources. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I think it's it's also really important that senior management just allow their staff to like to invest in those networks and to you know have conversations across organizations with their peers. Um, there's conferences. There's, as I mentioned, platforms. There's online platforms. You might have heard of the Pelican uh, mailing list. It's a brilliant kind of just platform for anything program quality related for NGO staff or you know philanthropy around the world to communicate. And there's other platforms like that. They don't cost anything. It's a bit of you know it's a bit of time investment, but it's so it's so valuable what the organization gets out of that. That I really think that just needs to be the recognition and the kind of you know the, the flexibility to yeah to enable that. Also, I do think there's been a change of attitude in recent years. Donors of any scale really want that evidence. They want to know how how many pence of each pound goes towards delivering services or invested into research. You know. How, how much, you know, what's the longevity of a project? Is this going to be something with a legacy, for example? And so I think people are tuning more into that evidence-based approach. It's not just the emotional, you know, tugging at the heartstrings approach anymore. And so I don't know, because you've been in doing this for around a decade now. Have you seen any changes in attitudes in or out of the sector? Yes, I've definitely, I definitely second what you've just said. There is a huge drive from funders to actually really wanting to see that kind of value for money. You know, where is every penny of every pound that we give you spend? And I'm, I'm quite critical of that because organisations spend so much effort on trying to get that evidence, and I'm not convinced that it's really necessary. I mean, you know, institutional funders want this because they want to tell the taxpayers where the money goes. But really, you know, I, t- I totally support accountability and transparency. And you know, there is terrible cases where money and, in, in, you know, in, uh, yeah, just organizations have yeah. not been used in an, in an efficient way. <laughs> yeah, but it's absolutely there. And I, you know, I think that's really that's really sad and that absolutely shouldn't happen but I also don't think that you know you you can go mad on on value for money and it is dragging a lot a lot of resources so that's definitely a trend I think we've reached the peak and funders are getting a bit kind of you know more maybe trustworthy again sure fingers (laughs) crossed fingers crossed always waiting for that one (laughs) one headline aren't we (laughs) Um, but and I um I think another trend is probably um, participatory mail. So funders, you know, realize that we don't organizations shouldn't just go out and do another survey on a community that's already been surveyed ten times this year. Right. And I'm really tired of right. questionnaires because there's not only one NGO working in this particular village. There's five, right? That's the reality of it. Um, so you know, thinking about kind of yeah more creative ways um, to give for participants to give feedback. There is really kind of playful uh, things that you could do in like as a group exercise that's really right, nice okay. methods for people who are illiterate you know you, they don't need that's to write anything down because yeah. a lot of the community okay. you work with are um, yeah or you know the kind of remote or kind of mobile 
kind sure. of ways of, of collecting data. Sure. Um, a lot of like the educational child focused programs that we do, you know, there's there's been really great initiatives on like child led monitoring in kind of again, you know, playful like child like age appropriate ways. Um, child led evaluations on children focused programming, that's that's things that get, really get the like more recognition with funders than not I think they used to be just, you know, considered some kind of soft kind of semi-valid mm. kind of mm. data that is nice to have but maybe doesn't tell sure. us that much mm -hmm. but it's really I think it's getting mm. better recognition now and I think the whole and um, the whole field of, of qualitative data if you know I mean collecting qualitative data in a good way is not easy and if it is collected and it could be endless way, really it's not a definitive you know it's not figures and numbers necessarily yeah. So. No, exactly. It's you know, it's it's stories, it's individual case stories, uh, case studies. It's um, yeah, it's, it's individuals kind of you know lives that have been changed in, in a certain way. That and that is really powerful stuff. And I think we're getting to the point where it's not just considered you know kind of oh it's a nice story that we can put a picture on and kind of yes you know, no one wants print. to consider it as a sub story yeah. or you know a poster yeah essentially. but fund you know we like we do for example we do longitudinal studies where we kind of revisit the same individuals over you know a couple of years or whatever to really see kind of the changes that are happening in their mm. lives both again you mm. know negative and positive because life is not linear yeah. uh, but yeah, to kind of, you know, I, th I think there is a recognition of that kind of, of qualitative data a bit more. At the same time, um, saying that there's also, you know, quite a drive for very, very rigid data collection of quantitative data. So we're talking about randomized control trials, which again, I'm really critical about because they're difficult enough to implement in a kind of stable context, say here in the UK. Sure. You know, think about, I don't know, rural Asia where, um, I don't know, Communities are flooded during the rainy season. You can't access. Um, you know how do you define? Like it's difficult to control to Absolutely. define your control group, and it's just like those studies, as rigid as the methodology might seem, they're so full of flaws and compromises. In a lot of assumptions need to be made to analyze exactly, it. Yes. <laughs> so in the yeah. end, you know the findings you get are not actually that strong quite often. And so are all these um, sort of questions, the sort of dictated by your team and your department um, or is it another joint effort to understand what sort of data call or quant that you want to collect it's really a collaborative effort again so we would yeah define that together with the team on the ground who is you know will be managing and implementing the program and, and the communities that we're working with as much as we can and yeah, so it's, it's totally a collaborative um, progress, yeah. Um, I had a question about innovation. So I think it's really important um, to have innovative projects that haven't been tried before and the likelihood that they're going to quote unquote fail or so we say lear take learnings from or have a higher risk because they're innovative. So does there have to be that that learning culture, that willingness in the organization, um, and part of that will be the mail plan, but does it have to be a willingness to quote unquote fail at times to ensure that true innovation happens? Otherwise you're just sticking within the boundaries and doing your usual bread and butter and actually the impact that you're having on communities can therefore not reach its potential um, and not you know, achieve the goals like reducing poverty, um, etc. So how important is innovation alongside having a robust mail plan but I think from an organizational perspective, they really have, have to have that willingness to quote-unquote fail at times. That's a really good question. I think, so there's, you know, there's programs um, that use methodologies that are tried and tested, and we know they work in certain contexts, and we probably keep you know, working in those ways for a while longer. But definitely, I think there's, you know, there's, huge, there's huge need for innovation, and I don't think we're really doing like as a sector we're not yes. really we're quite risk averse and I think it is mainly because our fund of our funding model we just 
often don't have the money to, you know, that, that allows us to fail. But I really think um, it would be great if we could be more innovative because, as you say, you know, we only we can only improve our work. We can only think outside the box. We can only try new things if we are allowed to try and fail and retry and refail and then retry and hopefully succeed at some stage. Um, and absolutely, like a so a, a MEL system for a kind of a more pilot type project that tests some innovation would be different from one that you use for a well-tested program because you would need to feed those kind of failure loops in and you know like like test frequently what's working, uh, what isn't, then like um, reassess, adapt and then test again so it would be a kind of more loopy way if, if you know what I mean uh, when, when it comes to monitoring and, and evaluating. Yeah. Um, I've done that quite a bit for a social enterprise I work for actually um, well we did quite a lot of innovative work and we would we would develop a specific mail system with different actually we, we were using different indicators at each stage of the pilot um, and yeah, because you you know you ha you're going through that kind of testing, yeah, reassessing, changing, retesting. So you kind of actually use different indicators, maybe even different methodologies at, at different stages during your your pilot. Whereas I think for a more kind of established program, you have a bit more stability sure. in the way that you monitor, in the way in the methodologies you use, and in the indicators that you use. Yeah. And do you think? talking about trends earlier, do you think the trend has changed over the last 10 years where charities, organisations, NGOs are becoming or, t or taking more risks with their projects to, to try to be more innovative? Have you seen that in play? I think so, yeah. As I say, I still think there is huge room for being more innovative. Yeah. But I, yeah, I, I definitely feel, you know, they're like organisations are trying to try new things a lot more and trying to work with funders to yeah to, to really to try new ways of working yeah thank you thank you so much thank you brilliant so a big thank you to regine for her time and sharing key insights into the mel program in summary mel is important as it enables an organization to understand what is and what isn't working. This allows organisations to develop their programmes to better serve their beneficiaries and by extension meet their vision and mission. Regine spoke candidly about the importance of keeping it simple and having clear and concise indicators to measure an organisation's impact. It's vital that the whole organisation is involved in developing a male framework. While there can be some challenges in either developing and rolling out a successful male programme, particularly in some of the most vulnerable corners of the world, it is important to continually reassess what the plan has been designed to measure or to achieve, taking into account any changes to projects or the reality on the ground. If you have ideas that you would like covered by us on Charity Chat, please get in touch at info at charitychat.org.uk. Thank you for listening and that leaves me to thank our sponsors. Giant Squid Audio Lab, sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Aksumit for our website design. RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images on our website. And Forrester Fools, who have been playing throughout the podcast and are playing us out now. 